Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Has a woman looked at you say like this is all for you? Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. And then just jumped off the, the loft upstairs. <laughs> the crows that kept surrounding me everywhere here. And, and you and you got a Rottweiler just looking at you funny, uh-huh. right? Yeah, the plate of glass that came in in the drive-through that went through almost got my head. That was the bad part. Yeah, yeah. It's always a, that's one of those accident horror movies. Yeah. Yeah, it's like just a series of accidents, or, or a normal get, day, get on any ladders. a normal day in Mike Bennett's life. One of the two. Yeah, I don't, Surfy. I'm so glad to hear from you. I was telling Adam, I made sure I had everything working perfectly before. The only thing I do is go get some food because I originally thought it was eight and it was seven. So I made sure I tested everything, had my headset working, everything great. I go get the food, get back to eat in like a couple minutes before you call the smoke detector starts going off here in the bonus room and it is at the highest place that only a two-person ladder can yeah, get to I- <laughs> yeah the, the other thing when i was scrambling to answer it i kicked my seat open and somehow i got too close to the little table with my computer knocked everything everywhere on the floor broke a bunch of stuff so i don't know what's going on wow well, me and Adam were just talking to a. We had a little Zoom video meeting, yeah. and uh, we look like the most, you know, stereotypical conspiracy guys. Because here, Adam's in like a, a room his mom is decorated in his <laughs> old house, and like I'm in my basement with the vents and stuff, and it's really dark. <laughs> I'm just kind of like, oh, these guys are creeps. Even <laughs> even mainstream news is looking that way, so you don't have to feel bad. <laughs> yeah, you know, know. multi-billion-dollar news has the same problem. They're, they're, they've all become podcasters now. Yeah, everybody's in their rec room. Yeah, yeah everybody's in the rec room. <laughs> it's like the '70s show. Everybody. Uh, by the way, Mike, um, I, I think I got my dad convinced to watch Force Four. All I had all to right. say, all I had to say was Warhawk Tanzania. Well, I would hope he would trust my my uh, recommendation for Force Four. <laughs> it is really good. It's right up there with the man from Harlem. <laughs> Anybody with the name Warhawk Tanzania, and is... and he's not even like the main star. 
<laughs> and then in that other one, the Devil's Express, he shares it with Brother Theodore. <laughs> yeah. Brother Theodore. <laughs> yeah. He's prominently displayed as a man of the cloth. All right, so uh, I'm ready to get started. So let's let's do this. Uh, um, let's go. And so we're out here on Conspiracy Normal. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, we were just talking about how everybody is a podcaster now. Literally, everybody's doing stuff from their rec room. I watched a uh, debate while I'm down here at my mom and dad's house uh, for the 14th Georgia district. And it was all done on zoom. And it looked like uh, it looked like everybody was in their rec room. You had like kids talking. And what was crazy to me was nobody turned their phones off. Nobody put their phone on silent. So like people were getting texts right in the middle of like talking during this debate. So you just heard these, you just heard these loud games. <laughs> yeah, it's it's annoying. And it sounds even worse when it's over a microphone. So it's like everybody, when you're doing this, which is a lot of people now, put your phones on silent. <laughs> that's that's my advice as a podcaster to the world. So, But uh, guys, we... Uh, Dr. Future is joining us. And back in the end of last year... In December, we did a show about his book, the two, two, it's two masters and two gospels, correct? Volume one. Volume one. Yeah. <clears throat> and we are still on this episode doing a show about the same book because there's a lot of information in it. And we're going to kind of pick up where we left off and welcome back. To conspiracy normal Dr. Feature, you're a longtime friend. Well, <clears throat> I was going to say the same thing to you. You guys are two of my dearest friends. And not only that, but your whole audience are some of my dearest friends. And of course, a lot of this is the fact that nobody else would hardly talk to me anymore. So that automatically <laughs> moves you in the rank ordering as far as audiences. <laughs> since, since your audience hasn't yet gotten around to rejecting me like everybody else. So, right. I, right. Uh, no, seriously, they've always been well, favorites of mine, and I feel like I can be myself more on this show than anywhere else yeah. I go. Yeah, yeah. We we, we have a... about the weird movies you're into as much as you want and everything. Yay! Good. <laughs> yeah, we could talk about Warhawk Tanzania. Yeah, yeah, that's one of my other contributions to you, Adam. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll just tell everybody since you mentioned it, Force Four. Which is a really cool movie. It's available on Amazon Prime right now, and uh, it's it's really really well done. Of uh, a bunch of guys that have to get some kind of little pagan idol statue back, and they got to fight everybody on the streets. And it's probably some of the slowest slow motion martial arts you'll ever see. <laughs> is, it, it, is it kind of like a precursor to the Warriors? Uh, yeah, if in fact, actually, the other movie with Warhawk Tanzania is more like the Warriors because that's in the uh, the subways and stuff like that. But what I like is is when like eight people surround each of the four people of Force Four, they're all polite and only attack them one at a time, and so they'll actually stand still and let the guy slowly do karate maneuvers on their belly, and then the next one moves up and stands still, lets them do it. So <laughs> it's almost like Dolomite. Uh, it, you know, it's not as well choreographed as Dolomite. 
Are, are there any are there any booms in oh, the wow. shot? Do you see any boom mics? I did see a, I did see a hand wave on the side of one one time on it. Okay, but okay I wasn't. Okay. I was just recording it while I was preparing for this interview. So well, well, I do want you to know that Doctor Future, you and I watched a movie not, a long time ago called Microwave Massacre. Right, and you, and I just watched it again with my dad. Yeah, not too long ago because my that's dad a is good, also that's a good that's a good father's day event I yeah think. He, he's watch. also a fan of, ter- <laughs> of, of terrible movies just yeah. as you are you and i are and it was disappointing because in the version that you and i watched yeah. the boom mics were clearly in the couple two or three of the shots okay in this version which was shown on tubi it was the, it was it looked like they had taken those out and i was like what's mm. the point why take it out it's a terrible movie anyway mm. <laughs> yeah how disappointing. I know. Yeah, yeah, really the most important thing to know about that movie is that the main character was the voice of Frosty the Snowman. <laughs> yeah, Jackie Vernon. Right. <laughs> yeah, and it was funny because I because of like my, my dad's cable system, you can look and see like the actors and whatever what right. other ones other movies they've been in. And it was like Frosty the Snowman and then like Frosty and Snowman and Frosty the Snowman and Rudolph. And then like another one, Frosty the Snowman, and then the fourth one was Microwave Massacre. Yeah. <laughs> well what's that say? He, he he is a diverse actor. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And and why don't they put a Jackie Vernon collection series where they have all of those in one for universal audiences, you know that's sort of like if you if you went up to uh, Christopher Lee and said that you enjoyed his favorite uh, movie he was in, which was Meat Cleaver Massacre, <laughs> to which he swears he was not in. But what they did was they stole a piece of his introduction from another movie and put it on the front of Meat Cleaver Massacre, and then said that he was in the movie. That seems to be a common practice. Yeah, in a lot of uh, yeah, in, even Christopher Lee. <laughs> yeah, Meat Cleaver Massacre. Oh, you cracking me up! Mike. Yeah, <laughs> none of those are as good as Nail Gun Massacre, but <laughs> we 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 should do a whole episode about um, bad movies. I think that that would be. What do you mean a single episode? We need a whole. Yeah, yeah we need. Well, <laughs> yeah, Adam has watched bad a, movies. Just he's, he's watched bad movies in my house for 10 years. Yeah. And I've not, I've still got thousands more he hasn't seen. We've watched uh, um, Death Promise, one of my favorites. Yeah. And of course, now Rotor has gone mainstream. Yeah. Now you can watch Rotor on Comet all the time. Yeah. And yeah, uh, Rotor is commonly played now. Right. Now, things from Canada they haven't shown or. Or Splatter Farm. They've not shown uh-huh. that one either. Yeah. Those are a few special movies. There was one movie, I don't remember the name of it, that we watched. And it was it was like he filmed the movie and either there was something wrong with the soundtrack or he never did a soundtrack. Soundtrack meaning the audio of the movie. Right. And we're watching this thing. And I started to slowly realize as the first scene of the movie unfolded that this was the same guy doing all the voices of each character, including the women. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, that's like, it's about like the movies I used to produce, you know, because 
I, I challenge the listeners to try, try to find VHS copies of my earlier movies, uh, Nightmare on Neptune, Lord of the Shadows, and What Now? Why is this not a Blu-ray, Mike? What, what's going on? Why? Uh, I have I did a number of years ago because they're sort of getting weathered on VHS. I got them converted to DVD, but I've not had like Criterion Collection contact me yet uh-huh. to do a, a faithful, loving uh, refurbishment up to Blu-ray. I'd like to go straight to 4K myself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, they they definitely deserve it. Um, I mean, I didn't even spend 4K on my movies. You know, I, <laughs> I don't I don't even think 400 on the most expensive one, but they're feature length. I mean, they're almost two hours long, all three of them. I so, make my movies long. I make my books long. I make my conspiracy normal episodes long. Yeah, there's 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 no there's no real brevity, but. Uh, no, but that's I think for that's sissies. A, but brevity is for sissies. Uh, okay, so for people that may not have heard the previous episode, or they're just now joining there, us. There's only four people that have not heard the episode. Yeah, well, there's there might be four people listening. Oh, okay. But but including the three of us, including the three of us. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So, kind of briefly recap what the book is about before we kind of get into a little more into the weeds oh. so on we, little more specific things so kind well, of like what we, we, what we, we kind can, of talked about in the in the first in the in the first episode so we can alienate even more of the listeners who will all be offended by something different you know it's like you saw at the beginning of the book while well, i say on future quake there's something here to offend everybody and so there's different sort of parts of the book that really rub different people the wrong way. But a, a, a conspiracy normal audience is probably my best shot at somebody who's going to like this book. Um, the, the, the basic genesis of it, as I've said before, is this was a big departure from what I was writing in my multi-long Holy War Chronicles, a spiritual uh, view of the war on terror series, which, which I'm up in the vicinity of about 12 volumes drafted. And I wanted to get all that done, but... <clears throat> We have all collectively witnessed things get collectively weirder the last few years on our political discourse and our social discourse. And the whole COVID situation here is just put it on steroids if you, if it could ever get more intense of widespread distrust, conspiracy, uh, people having really negative views of each other. You know, now we got all these people with guns going up to the governor's offices and things like that. And I think most of us could agree at least the potential exists for things to get even worse. And I have really noticed this stridency really starting to take off, you know, leading up to the last election cycle, presidential election cycle. And a lot of the people from my cultural background, people from the Bible Belt, more religious right kind of background that I was raised in. And just e- even I mentioned in the book, right when I was in line to be elected, all these old people were in line and they had these real scary stern looks on their face, like they were doing some kind of Delta Force operation or something. And when I asked them, you know, <laughs> what was on their mind on things, you know, one of the guys behind me's response was, it's best that I just not talk about that. <laughs> yeah. And and that's sort of consistent with what I've been seeing about I, I just a general hatred of people who are outsiders or different, whether they're immigrants or minorities 
or the poor or anybody else is suspect. And I really do get a feel, I, I know this is overused and cliched, but sort of like the vibe going on in Germany in the 30s. Uh, you know, particularly when I would see rallies, when the person holding the rally would say, you know, beat up the protester and I'll pay their legal bills. And then you just see them grabbing them and everybody's swinging and beating the daylights, you know, and these are good old God-fearing people doing that, dragging them out. And uh, it, it it really just tells me that there's something innate, particularly about people in my culture who always had this spiritual underpinning that justified who they were and their culture and sort of an air of superiority. And uh, I, I, I just think something is coming to a head. And so as I started writing about that on my blog, it's sort of wondering about who are we picking to be our standard bearers? What kind of character do they have? You know, are they are these the kind of people who are introspective, that are slow to speak, uh, look inwardly at themselves on, you know, their motives or humble, any of that kind of thing? And I'm not seeing a whole lot of that. And as I started writing about that and sort of looking back historically, when religious people did the same thing, when they picked guys like, you know, Barabbas or Bar Kokhba <clears throat> to be their standard bearers, profane men who were, you know, didn't care about individuals, didn't have a gentle bone in their body, and what happened uh, to their culture and society because of that, because they got to that point. And then that's when, I, again, I always blame you, Adam, because as I started writing about this stuff and, and really honking off a lot of people on my blog, you said, you know, this stuff is really timely with yep. what's going on in the world at the time, and you need to maybe be thinking about changing your plan to, you know, write all this after you get done your Holy War Chronicles. And so, obviously, I do whatever Adam Sane tells me to do. <laughs> you know, it's like that old adage, Adam says it, I believe it, that settles it. So, I totally hey, changed you know, my motive. I got a lot of pull, what can I say? Yes, you. well, at least with me, I'm your automaton. Or your, I'm probably more like your... Uh, uh oh shoot what was the one in Prague the uh not Dabuk the, the golem golem yeah that's uh, what I write I'm your golem and uh <laughs> so anyway uh I started working this up thinking well would this really end up being a book and as I started uncovering more and more weird stuff and one thing led to another and it started to solidify into a theme it got so big I realized it would be a trilogy um, and even, you know, a trilogy of three long books. And so that's what this first one ended up. And sorry for that long preamble, but basically the, the, the thesis of it is that I tried to figure out what is some kind of historical context that I could relate to what is going on. And the one thing that I noticed when I have talked to people, because most of the people that I'm around are mostly church folk and you know, that culture I'm involved in a church and people I was raised with and family are, is, is when when they get these real aggressive arguments and real pushy kind of things, particularly sort of ugly about other people, I don't find that they use the words of Jesus as the words to argue why they're taking their positions, particularly their, you know, really forced ones against immigrants or other people who are downcast. What they, what they end up doing is sort of saying verbatim the talking points that I have personally heard on talk radio or cable news. And I found it interesting for people who say, oh, I, I just follow Jesus or whatever, but they don't ever really quote him. 
what they do is they quote something that I know I heard from a radio show or cable news. And as I started thinking about, well, you know, we're psychological beings and we're influenced on what we're exposed to. And I realized that, you know, these people, even if they're regular weekly churchgoers, they've got maybe a half hour of exposure to the words of Jesus about humility and turning the other cheek and, you know, loving your neighbors yourself. But then all week, they're listening for many hours every single day to something totally different. Yeah, it's, uh, on, it's, a, it's, a, it's an opposite message. Yeah, driving yeah. to work, sitting at work, listening to it, driving home, go home, eat dinner, turn on cable news. And that's why I sort of say, you know, it's like another gospel. And that's the gospel I hear him quoting and talking about and trying to figure out, well, how would I relate to how that was different than what Jesus said back then? And I realized everything that they sort of push, their positions about how poor people are a burden, government assistance is bad. In fact, just government's bad, period. Uh, And privatized, everything should be privatized. There should be no regulations to protect workers, no regulations to protect the environment, anything like that, is everything that comes out of the big business wealth class. Every one of those things to a T meets what the big business world serves their own pockets and their interest. And when I saw that and started really looking at like when Jesus day, the people who took that line were the Pharisees, uh, the Sadducees and Pharisees, both. They were like two elements of it. The Sadducees were more the politically connected establishment. I'd compare them more to more of a neocon kind of Rockefeller Republican kind of clientele. And then you had, you know, cause they were sort of in bed with the globalist. And then you had the culture warriors, which were the Pharisees. And the culture warriors were into maintaining their control over the social norms of society. The other side could care less about it. But their, their peers, the Pharisees, it was all about being able to control how people behave and what was seen as righteous or good in society. Culture war police. But it turns out back then they would actually collude together to stop anybody new coming to the table with any kind of new ideas or a new perspective on what was good in life. And that's what they did to Jesus. And they got in with Rome, but it was mostly the Sadducees and Pharisees who, who Jesus said, says that they were lovers of money. And that's why everything they talked about was figuring out, that's why they raided widows' homes, they says. And uh, every one of their agenda items was how to line their pockets in a deeper way and also rub shoulders with other wealthy people and to actually show that that was a sign of God's blessing is if you had really achieved a lot in your business or other kind of things. And and in this book, I, fi- I show in there that one of the reasons that they really clashed and, and Jesus showed that his real battle was not, his battle wasn't even really the demons that he was counteracting. He'd just tell them to shut up. But he didn't really focus on, like, pagan religions. He didn't focus on outsiders. If anything, he complimented them. Uh, the, the, the people he, he battled was the money class. And something I didn't know until I did research for this book was that, one, it, a lot of us remember, if you grew up in church, the whole story about Jesus turning over the money changers' uh, tables and stuff, you know, where they, they had this racket where they, would, they came up with their own cryptocurrency, they call it temple money, where they could take your money and then convert it to only – it was only good there at the temple. 
and they got whatever exchange rate they decided to do. And then they gave, you know, second class animals and stuff like that. And that was only the official ones you could use there. And, uh, but, but Jesus not only did that, but he turned over the tables twice. He did it at the very, very beginning when he started his public ministry. And he did it at the very end when he knew it was time for him to go be captured and killed because he knew that was a surefire way. You know, it was one thing for him to teach a different doctrine, but what really got them uh, riled up was when he started hitting them in the pocketbook. And when he started spending over their stuff, and it turns out one of the, the main high priests, that sort of like the Mafia Don, like in the, the um, um, Godfather, you know, like the senior Don, that was Annas. And Annas always had his sons on, he had his sons as sort of like the titular heads of the high priesthood. But he was the power behind the throne, and and uh, Annas was the one that was running the, the racket with his kids to make all the money in those. They called them the stalls of Annas, where all of the money and the, and the uh, animals were controlled at the temple. And so they were using their priesthood as a way to run a monopoly. And when he turned that stuff over and exposed it, they said, okay, we've had enough. We've got to take you out. And so... What I showed show in the book was this is an ancient battle between the moneyed slash religious interest and the man of the people. And and then I, I lay out in the book all of the I probably 20, 25 issues of the day that shows here's what Jesus said or his apostles. And here's what the talk radio cable news people say. And there's no overlap on any yeah. of the issues, not yeah. at all. And and what becomes completely clear is that they really are teaching what Jesus called the leaven of the Pharisees, because every one of their positions are something to help put more money in the pockets of the money men and against the common folk. And so you you began to kind of ask yourself the question of why, yeah. how did this come about, right. where did this come from? And you trace it back in, in America in the last century, yeah. Right, right. And, and that's the part that I think will be most interesting to your listeners. The rest of the stuff, whether they're religious or not, I don't know what their interests are. But what, when I get into the history is when things start to get really weird because there was stuff, it was non-intuitive associations of people. And we've been told a certain PR about who, who was behind what, and you find out behind closed doors completely dis different sets of people are cavorting together and they're and it's not like everything we've been told and i go as you know in gross detail laying it out and there is just wall-to-wall -wall weirdness for hundreds of pages of documenting what really happened in the 20th century and ended up with the culture that we have today yeah and so you get into you get into a lot of things about how big business uh, wanted to counter the New Deal, wanted to use basically the church, and a lot of church people were, uh, churchmen, priests, um, ministers, were against it at the time, and slowly there became this, there was a big push to, like, to equate Christianity with American patriotism, and this happens as a counter, especially after the Cold War, against communism, and there's also a, there's also this um, this thread of something that's called Christian libertarianism, All right? And with that, you kind of start getting into deep into the weeds. 
So, yeah, yeah. we left off last time, right? With uh, we talked about really the origins of this plot uh, that big business really did think out and devise to basically capture right. the clergy of the United right. States, right. their political aims. So we, we kind of have the first origins of that stuff in the last episode. And that's where we pretty right. much leave and off. If, if I could just very briefly, uh, as best as I can say, like, uh, James Fifield. Right. Well, it, the, the key event was this James Fifield guy. They called him the apostle to the millionaires. And he yeah. was probably the first real, prosperity gospel preacher um this was really before tv and stuff and he came out around 1935 to take over first congregational church in southern california in los angeles area and he started using all these big business tactics to turn around the financial thing and make them the big money place he got all the fortune 500 chiefs to go to his church he was he was sort of sacredizing everything about making lots of money that that was really religiously great to do that and and you know conspicuous wealth consumption was somehow a sign of god's blessing which is what the pharisees taught but at the same time what happened was the national association of manufacturers and the chambers of commerce were licking their wounds because this was still coming out of the great depression and the the american people had been blaming big business and their greed with helping bring us all into the Great Depression and all the suffering that went on. At the same time, they had this horrible reputation within the country. They also saw the New Deal come about, and the New Deal was trying to get people employed again because at least a quarter of the public was out of work. And and what happens is when you leave people out of work that long, what happens is what you saw in, in Weimar, Germany. People get desperate. They get with, like, extremist religious movements. All sorts of bad stuff starts to happen. And so they were putting people to work, building dams and bridges and roads and highways, you know, just different things like that. And they saw that as a terrible affront that the government would help people get employment rather than just keep them unemployed and any kind of assistance at all. And so they were fighting the New Deal. They thought that was the most evil thing that mankind had ever devised was government work. Also, any kind of uh, worker rights, unions and worker rights, they thought was the most diabolical thing they had ever heard of because that could slightly shave a hair off of their profits, the gross profits that they made. And so they were desperate to try to turn that around, and that's when Reverend Fifield came to their National Association of Manufacturers meeting and said – hey, have I got a solution for you? He says, the only in institution in America that still has any credibility are the clergy. And I can help you try to sort of repackage Bible teaching to be more of a big business kind of message. And if we go through the clergy, they can be your sales force out there, and they will be your sales force to get everybody on board. And the honest truth is it was a massive success. And that's the world that we have today was because of that. And there were some other really major businessmen in Southern California that helped Reverend Fifield with that. And they are some pretty strange guys. And they were the guys who really formed the libertarian movement, particularly in America, which is really the main expression of it is in America. Uh, and they had sort of a hidden life that nobody else really knew. And uh, that's sort of the crux, I think, where we left off you know, up till today. Yeah. 
Well, let's let's actually start because I want to talk a little bit about spiritual mobilization, which is yeah. Byfield's organization, which dovetails into what we're gonna the subject that we're gonna talk about. And specifically, we're going to talk about some of these other kind of weird dealings that they had that were outside of what you would call, even remotely call, like, mainstream Christianity. Right. So, but spiritual mobilization is kind of important to understand this organization. So, what was this organization? Well, I mean, technically, Fifield founded it on his own, and then it was adopted by the big money people in the National Association of Manufacturers, and particularly J. Howard Pugh, who was the founder of Sunoco. He's the one that founded the Pugh Charitable Trust. He was a guy who uh, underwrote Christianity Today, uh, a lot of your Christian institutions today. He was the guy who bankrolled it. And there were some other guys from some, like uh, Lyman Stewart from Unical, uh, Union Oil, and others were behind this. There was another oil man, Sid Richardson, that was the main bankroller for Billy Graham, for example. So it was big oil and some other industrialists that got behind it. And spiritual mobilization was it, what it tried to do was to turn this whole thing about, for example, the social gospel, which tried to help people that were living in, I mean, we're abject poverty we can't even imagine today. Um, you know, where you had like 20 people living in a room and sharing a bed. And little children working in mines for 16 hours a day, seven days a week, no health care, no decent food to eat. And some of these Christian people started getting involved and feeling like, hey, we're our brother's keeper. We, we, we can't let this go on on our watch. I mean, it was like Dickens, London, only worse. And that, you know, think of the Gilded Age and. In one hand, you got these rich people literally having sandboxes filled with rubies and diamonds and kicking them around. And then you've got the, the masses of people who are dying prematurely. You know, the average, I think, the average lifespan of an American at 1900 was 35 years. I mean, that's, that's pretty, like a caveman. That's pretty bad. Yeah, a caveman may have lived longer, actually, <laughs> because of all the pollution. And the widespread disease that, you know, wasn't being eradicated. I mean, and, and of course, there was high infant mortality because they couldn't get any kind of help and there wasn't good nutrition and things. And so they tried to do this, and, and the um, big business people saw it as a threat. And they, they felt it was a threat. If people, people start getting fed and they start having maybe a few hours off, they might start getting some scary ideas. <laughs> and doing, you know, overcoming the masters. And, and in fact, at the end of the book, one of the most famous Christian theologians of the 20th century, G.K. Chesterton, uh, sort of a genius, in fact, even C.S. Lewis was sort of awe him, he wrote a book called Utopia for Usurers. And in fact, he exactly said that, that he said, the capitalists, and this was in 1912 he wrote it, he says, if you start allowing people to get a few days off and consider that's their own time, then they're going to start giving some ideas, and they might even start doing their own thing on the side. But and, how would and they will have none of it. How would, your, how would you have your sandboxes full of rubies, though? How would well, you? It, well, yeah, I mean, that might threaten it. You know, you start taking a sliver off of the windfall profits. Well, that's <laughs> un unconscionable. And the, um, but they, they basically taught that all of that was of the devil, helping your fellow man. 
that, uh, you know, the, the way capitalism works, you know, it's the old golden rule that he who has the gold makes the rules. And so when you've got somebody who has tons of money in a factory and you got a guy who's got a baby to feed at the end of the week, uh, you're not going to have a real fair negotiation on wages. And and it only gets worse and worse. And every society has found when you don't put any kind of restraints on it, before long, you're going to have all the money concentrated in just a handful of hands. And and that's why in Israel, God had his specifications, like the year of Jubilee and stuff, because it was inevitable in any of them that this would happen. And that's where America was going. And the New Deal was a way, I mean, like I said, a quarter of the people were out of work. And they started getting wild ideas and radical, you know, uh, extremist movements and things when they're desperate. And at least this got them to work where they could have some self-respect. I mean, these people worked hard. They weren't handed money. Um, but, you know, they, they built all the infrastructure that we use today, helped got the state parks, you know, usable and things like that. And uh, that's why they got with this Fifield guy and they said, okay, start writing about how God hates government. God hates any kind of assistance to the downtrodden, that that is evil, and that any kind of assistance, anything that's not privatized is of the devil, and that free enterprise and capitalism were basically handed down on Mount Sinai. And that's what they sold, and their target were clergy. And they had the overwhelming bulk of the clergy getting the faith and freedom newsletters that came out of spiritual mobilization. But the real kicker, and I think I mentioned this on the last show, was they went so far as to offer to pay pastors and clergy in sweepstakes if they would preach sermons to their congregation talking about how business was the saviors of society. Yeah. They would give them like $5,000 awards, which was a whole lot of money back <laughs> in that day, probably an annual salary for a lot of pastors, to just preach these sermons. And it was all kind of like under the table. Yeah, no, it was just amongst them and their newsletters. You know that that they would get this stuff, and so the congregation didn't know. I mean, they the 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 pastors were the only ones that still had any kind of reputation, and they thought they were getting a straight story. And that's why the Bible always takes a hard line against Balaam the prophet, because he was a prophet for hire. He would tell anybody what they wanted to hear to further their interest for for money. And God really, really, really hates that. I think you went into some of the numbers last time just to show the type of influence that faith and freedom had and spiritual mobilization. Um, what were some, what was what was the reach of that? Well, if I remember, I'm going off the top of my head here, but I think somewhere like at a minimum, a minimum, a third of all clergy were regular readers of faith and freedom. And when they had these sweepstakes, they had double that amount participate. So you're talking potentially a majority of clergy out there were participating in sermons so they could get extra money under the table for it. Um, you know, I'm speaking wow. in general terms off of it. But, you know, if you get 5 or 10% even of a large group, that's a critical mass. Yeah. Because you basically and grab if, the rudder of a One ship. of the most influential groups. Well, you know, you take like a, a Rush Limbaugh. Uh, a Rush Limbaugh maybe speaking to 10 million people or something, and you think, well, it's you know 330 million people in the country, but that motivated 10 million can can drive the ship for everybody else. Oh yeah. Well, once once yeah. you get a significant minority that's motivated, they'll run everything. Yeah. 
Especially and, the clergy. I mean, that's they, yeah. they have such a big influence in everyone's lives. They're force multipliers. And and again, one of the, the, the oil guys in here that was studying it for the rest of them said in there is that you got to get the clergy because they're the only people that are trusted anymore in society. And so they, they prostituted them and they exploited that trust that people had in them. You've got a couple of figures. You've got a few figures that you mentioned that are key in this. And there's, Ing I'm probably going to mangle this, Inga Bretson. Yeah, I'm, Molin, I'm not sure. Right. Molendor right. and Leonard Reed. And Leonard Reed is kind of a, he's a little bit of a uh, pathway to the main, to a, what is going to be our main topic about Gerald Hurd. But who were these guys? And these are kind of like a, yeah. And aren't they, don't they form kind of like a core group within yeah. spiritual mobilization that really helped direct it more than well, anything? The, the main thing is they were geographically all in Southern California, and they all had some kind of connection to the Chamber of Commerce. Right, and which, Fifield was in Southern California, too. He was right. in Los Angeles. Yeah. That's right, and that's why I mentioned in the book that Southern California, and then before long, Gerald Hurd and Aldous Huxley got there, and you had Krishnamurti, who was the world savior of theosophy. All these people started converging in this area in the 30s, and it became another burned-over district, just like in the 19th century in upstate New York where you had Mormonism come out and the spiritualism movement and these other, you know, belief shakers, other belief system. Southern California became that in the 20th century. And um, mm -hmm. one thing I didn't know until I did this research in the book was that the, the um, um, Chamber of Commerce, not only just the, the National Chamber of Commerce, but the Los Angeles branch – was the largest and still is the largest lobbyist in America. Now, you think about big oil and big tobacco and big pharma, and to think that the Chamber of Commerce is still the king of the lobbyist. And that's the kind of clout these guys had. And, and what they do is they look out for what maximizes the profits for the large business community nationwide. That is their agenda. It's not to see what's best for America or whatever else. Now, they may tell people, well, what's best for business is best for America. Well, that's irrelevant to them. What's, what's, who pays the bills uh, is the big business to get what's best for big business. And that's what these guys sort of came out. Um, now, Mullendore was the head of Southern California Edison, which was the main utility there. He also was yeah. uh, one of the board members of North American Aviation, big defense contractor, a bunch of other companies. Uh, Leonard Reed was the head of the Los Angeles branch, and I think Mullendore actually even served on the cabinet for Hoover. Um, and then um, uh, in Gepperson, I don't know how you pronounce his name either, Adam, um, he was the main defense counsel. For, for them, and then eventually he was on the board of, of spiritual mobilization too, and then began leading it um, in the mid-50s. He took over for Fifield and took it in an even more bizarre direction. But these guys all sort of hung out together, and then they, you know, they were all hardcore libertarians, hardcore big business, no regulation, no balance of power kind of thing. 
And then, you know, they went into the hard libertarian approach and then got into weird religious uh, pursuits. And that's where they sort of walked through all those paths, including the LSD path and uh, a bunch of other things like that. Well, so let's get into that. I mean, Leonard Reed, especially. Yeah. Um, now, I picked this out from page 315 of your book. Uh-huh. And I thought that this was uh, fairly interesting. I can read this if you'd like. Um, uh, by, by the way, I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, Adam, because yeah. you've got you. I, I can relate. You've got a you know a guest every week, and you got all their material. Had you got a chance to go through most of either that chapter or the the chapter we're focusing on tonight? Yes. Oh, uh, well, yeah. We both read the whole chapter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, good. Did, well, let me yeah. just ask you on the spot before we get it. Do you feel like there was enough interesting stuff in there that you're readers would get something intriguing and eye-opening out of it uh, i would say so. absolutely yeah. there's a lot of good. stuff in there good because there's a lot alone in that one chapter <laughs> yeah uh because you know i don't like to waste people's time and i don't want people to do something where they don't find something that sheds light on something and is enlightening and i yeah, even, i try to even, do that on yeah. every few pages try to do something like that even if you're just interested in some some history of the time of that uh, wealthy Southern California scene and a lot of that early to mid 20th century kind of uh, some of the views and, and intellectual trends among the elite in, in America. Yeah, well, and all of it still affects the world we're in today. I mean, you know, in many ways they succeeded. And the world that we deal with is basically what they invested in during those critical years, particularly from the late 30s up through about 1960. And it set the table for even what the d discourse is, what our dialogue is today, how we frame issues. They, they were the ones who defined it. And, and all we do is just keep making the same arguments over and over again that they did. But what the book does is shows what their other agendas were and why they even bothered it. But anyway, I interrupted you, Adam. You were going to mention something about Lit Reed. Well, well, I was going to read. I was going, I was going to read about Linda Reed. Um, yeah. In this, in this paragraph from from your book uh from the chapter so this talks about some of the stuff that we've already been talking about but uh, so so you say other sources provide more information on the forgotten activities and associates of the close friend so close circle of fifield ingbretson heard and their assistance at spiritual mobilization and faith and freedom including southern california edison corps chief william c Mullendore and fellow libertarian founding father and head of the largest branch of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in Los Angeles, Leonard Reed, as we mentioned. He was also the founder of the Foundation for Economic Freedom, one of the first modern libertarian institutions. At the helm of the Los Angeles branch of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, consistently the largest lobbyist in America, and with the pro-business mission to fight labor reforms and wage increases and promote deregulation and offshore business practices. Reed was, however, more fully convinced of the nefarious nature of the public jobs and welfare assistance of the New Deal in 1933 by way of his interactions with Mellendorf and the preaching of Fifield as an attendee of his church. Eventually founding the FEE, he regularly interacted with and was influenced by libertarian icon and author Ayn Rand, whose objectivism philosophy became something of a cult amongst his followers in the eyes of many, its 
emphasis on personal selfishness and lack of accountability to others, eschewing help for the disadvantaged and draconian actions for those who stood in their way in terms of foreign policy with an unabashed self-centered belief system probably rivaled only with Satanism in its self-glorification. This was explained in a brief biography article of Reed by Reverend Edmund Opus, Optus, another member of their inner circle, in the 1998 edition of the Freeman Journal, operated by Reed's FEE, which is currently available online. In addition to the above facts, it adds his, his starting of pamphleteers incorporated a small group of Friends of Liberty within the chamber orbit who, in their ninth floor underground, occasionally chipped in to print short works that otherwise might be neglected, like Rose Wilder Lane's Give Me Liberty and Ayn Rand's Anthem. Now, I have actually read some Ayn Rand. I've read The Fountainhead. I've mm-hmm. read Atlas Shrugged. I'll never get this, this, that time of my life back. Yeah, sorry. But, uh, but I... It's very. It was very easy for me to see that, like, she was very critical of Christianity, and she was very critical of communism too. But she kind of saw them as the same, as the as the as the two heads of the same hydra, yeah. in many ways. So she was very inimical. So here is this, I guess, Christian. He's association with Five Field Christian Libertarian movement, but yet they're hanging out with Ayn Rand. So what goes to explain this? Well, you know, it's a big complicated mess because Ayn Rand, you know, I think I saved this for volume two, but I quote a article from the head or the intellectual officer, the you know philosophical head of the Ayn Rand Institute. Uh, they actually talk about um, in Fox News – that they talk about America has to choose to either follow Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount or follow Ayn Rand. And you cannot do both. And they talk about only losers turn the other cheek and love their, love their neighbor and love their enemies. And that America is going to lose if they adopt that instead of going to Ayn Rand. So it's not like it's just a, a selfish kind of thing that just ignores or disregards Christianity, it declares itself to be the enemy of Jesus. That anything about loving your neighbor or loving your enemy is is fighting words with them. And so with Ayn Rand, if there's any worship going on, the only worship she tolerated is of herself. She did believe in the religion of worship of her. And if you said anything that she decided was not worship of her, you were thrown out of her circles yeah. and were immediately rejected. But, but the curious thing about this crowd, and you know, they're almost like a rat pack, you find as you read through my work, where they, they're all involved in the same kind of things you know, going on, same kind of sort of exploratory things, is that um, Leonard Reed, who, who by the way, um, if they had a Mount Rushmore of libertarianism, he would be on there. He would be on there with Von Mises and Murray Rothbard and those guys. He's considered that fundamental to the founding of the libertarian movement. Uh, his foundation for economic education, its whole purpose was to get everybody on board and change their thinking to think about the libertarian, you know, in like 
why do you think why do you care about other people why are you caring about what happens to them or how your actions affect other people he had to like basically change people to think that way and that's what that organization did for the movement but while he he regularly had dinner with Ayn Rand they were considered close friends uh, I quote some of the letters that they exchanged where she basically considered him he was a guy that he had to get rid of conservatives she thought conservatives were not conservative enough and were a danger um, and so while she saw him the guy making this happen Leonard Reed was part of this group that also was pursuing really bizarre we'd consider them sort of new age like far eastern cult practices uh, going into LSD and stuff like that and so Mullendor, Reed uh, this and Gabritson, others were all in part of that kind of thing. And you know, people, at least I would have thought in the past, would have assumed if people were into New Age religions and into channeling and taking LSD and stuff, they would associate that with more of a leftist kind of view. But these guys were hyper hard right. They were they were ultra hard right people. In fact. They uh, one thing at Mullendore really one reason he got even deeper into LSD was that he believed that America was lost because they got that dreaded uh, leftist uh, Dwight Eisenhower uh, for president in '52. <laughs> right. He said right. he said that's the end of it because Eisenhower uh, is just it's, such it's an a, extreme. It's over, leftist. man. It's over. right. It's, it's over. over. America's been lost. Uh, Right. Which he meant for loss for big business, but you know, because you know, well, actually, Eisenhower didn't even talk about the military-industrial complex at the very end. But, um, but, but these guys were just super hard right big business people, and they were the ones who were pursuing Krishnamurti and then Gerald Hurd and all this stuff. And see, all of this um, stuff about like out taking LSD and opening their chakras, and you know. These, these deep openings in the New Age world, were, they were birthed at places like Bohemian Grove. And that's where Leonard Reed talks about. And I, that's where he went. I, I go into the book about how it's probably the longest narrative I've ever come across of somebody writing about their experience at Bohemian Grove. And I took that from his um, – at the federal – excuse me, the Foundation of Economic Education website, which is still a very active group. And his notes are all there, and he talks about like 1954, which you can imagine how wild it's gotten since 1954. But, uh, I mean, you know, that's almost 70 years ago. And he just talks about all the debauchery, but all this stuff about getting these guys on board happened at Bohemian Grove. And so you know, the alignment of what you think, well, somebody's going to fall on the left or right if they're involved in this or that, none of that really is what really happens behind the scenes. Right, right. This is this is this is a hard right set of groups but that were about, contemplating their navel. But we, and we've talked about before, though, how some of that might be viewed as a uh, like their view of religion was that there was a version of religion for the masses, and yeah. then the elites get to have this more uh, individualistic self-discovery uh, thing, and then also with. Just with the, the hedonism too, you know, a lot of a lot of people who are on the surface, you know, who preach this like social conservatism, we've found, you know, in the last few decades are in all kinds of stuff, 
in their personal lives. And some of them may view it the same way. Like it's okay. You know, they're cultured enough to engage in, in this type of right. behavior, but we, they shouldn't promote it for the masses because then it'd be chaos. Right. But you know, a classic you know, the, guy, them and that, their, their children, yeah. right. A classic guy. That's Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich is sort of seen as yeah. a very new age kind of guy and also a real hard right kind of guy. Um, uh, now, you know, guys like Paul Ryan were hardcore Ayn Rand followers. You know, he always promoted Ayn Rand, and that's why on the Tea Party, when the Tea Parties would get together, they'd have all those signs. Ayn Rand was right, and these were Christian people holding it, and I don't think they had really a clue what in the world Ayn Rand really believed. Well, well Rand Paul is named after Ayn Rand. <laughs> oh, my. You know, you know that, right? Well, I'm not surprised. Yeah. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know that, but I'm not yeah. surprised, and it... Yeah. Makes me want to slit my wrist. Yeah. You know, here, here, a future Quake guest of many, many years ago who <laughs> I can't undo. I can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. But Well, I mean, it uh, seems like that, that Ayn Rand-style libertarianism is just so so void of spirituality that a lot of people who would get into it would eventually be looking for something uh, because they need something else. Yeah. Well, I can see them. And it's, it's kind of like a right. stereotype, you know, like these super, super square business guys in Southern California, you know, probably having midlife crises, trying right. to, trying to find themselves. Well, that now that would suggest, and that we see that a lot where there's a cro- chronological evolution in somebody where they go right. that way. And then there's a relapse or the pendulum swings. The case I'm talking about, uh, the libertarian movement was split. Uh, in the leadership, there was the Ayn Rands, and then there was Murray Rothbard, who is another big name in libertarianism, and probably Milton Freeman, although he didn't come up as much in the book. Those guys couldn't make any sense out of these weirdos and their their new age beliefs. Uh, they, you know, they were secularists, they were materialists, they didn't understand any of that. And then you've got these other guys who are also like hardcore libertarians who are also following these gurus and yogis. And then Gerald Hurd took them further in this. He was a British mystic, but they were into studying UFOs and um, parapsychology, channeling spirits. Now, and Gebretson is a very interesting guy because he took over spiritual mobilization in the mid-50s. I think he may have been the one who got Gerald Hurd sort of doing his sort of subversive kind of writing in there, uh, in, in the newsletters. But he had a sort of a life crisis where he had some triggering event, spiritual event, that he thought his dead daughter took over him, yeah. like possessed yeah. him. Yeah. And, then, and then, you know, like um, Prince is not the only one who's taken a sigil to represent his name. This guy did the same thing, and Gabrielson made some kind of little sigil symbol who he was, and he took on this name called Christopher, K-R-I-S-T-O-F-E-R. He thought it was channeled to him, and he started, like, scrawling it in, like, the dinner table there for, like, Leonard Reed and other stuff like that. It almost seemed to me like it was, like, this, like, amalgamation of, like, um... His daughter's name or something. Right, it right, right, very right, feminine right. in a way, yeah. Yeah, he was trying to sort of make in a concrete form this transformation. So he, he totally went into emphasizing this uh, spiritual pursuit. He formed an organization, Cohen of the Cross. And up until the day he died, which wasn't terribly long ago when he passed away, 
he continued this progression of just really hardcore new age belief. And the um, these guys formed a group called the Wayfarers, and they became the followers of, of Gerald Hurd, the, the British guy who came over with Aldous Huxley, and he got them into you know, the LSD usage. And well, I'm sorry? Well, I was just going to say, we've mentioned Gerald Hurd a lot. And we've been yeah. dancing around it. So let's get into Gerald Hurd, okay. who he was. Because honestly, Mike, before you started telling me about him, I had no idea this that, yeah. that this person even existed. And now that you've read at least these two chapters in the book, would you agree with me that he's probably one of the most influential people in modern Western culture? He seems to be. He seems to be the one of the uh, more... Bu- influential people that a lot of people have not heard about yeah i think we we're we're kind of stuck on like huxley and some of these um english yeah. figures but i think he, he seems to be the one who really though he's from england he was really more ingrained it seems like in in americans yeah well he sure spent more time here but uh when i say western i sort of include british and american in that yeah, 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 suited yeah, him totally. but but obviously the predominantly american but his impact in Britain occurred before he got on the ship with Aldous Huxley in 37 to come here because he was the science editor for the BBC. And as I mentioned in here, H.G. Um, uh, Wells said that he was the only person that he would listen to on the BBC. Yeah. Was, was Gerald Hurd. And the thing is, you know, all these people, when I start writing about people now, I realize how, how they're formed in their early years, and it dictates the rest of their life. You know, a case in point would be um, um, Alistair Crowley. You know, he got beaten a lot as a kid by his, like, super uh, fundamentalist parents. I think they were brethren. I seemed like I remember that, Plymouth yep. Brethren or something. Plymouth Brother, yep. Yeah, but they, you know, his mom would call him the little beast. And you were just a little beast and basically just a lot of shaming and stuff like that. And eventually, he just took on the moniker. It's like, well, if you keep telling me I'm a beast, then I guess I'm the beast. And, of of course, he completely went away from anything of his parents, what they treasured, you know, an organized religion or anything. And his goal was to humiliate it by any way possible. And Gerald Hurd also was dictated by his youth. I think, as it sounds like to me, he was probably, I don't know if you'd use the term effeminate, but he wasn't really sort of one of these real rough, tough kind of kids. And I think he got beat up a lot. And one of the things he discovered, by, according to his biographers when he was young, was that he could start spinning some tall tales and keep talking, and the kids would stop beating him up. And he quickly learned that if he could start telling tall tales and just keep it going and, and spread things, he could get away and get away with stuff. And that really was a consistent theme his whole life. But Gerald Hurd was an extremely bright kid. He had a very, very active imagination. Uh, and at some point in his life, um, he, he began to succumb to um, gay uh, feelings, uh, sexual feelings. And when, you know, back in that era, we're talking, uh, I guess he came from late 1800s. So you're talking about early, like, lost generation, maybe the teens, when he started really expressing a lot of this. 
that automatically alienates you from a lot of the mainstream culture back at that era because, you know, all of the laws against that expression. And so what it did was it sort of pigeonholed you in a separate subculture. I mean, we still have a gay subculture now, um, but it's nothing like how as cloistered as it was back then. Right. And, and back it then... Was comple- it was completely underground. Of course, he had to go to London and to find the artist community, and particularly with the author, some of the, like, uh, was it W.H. Auden and a few other famous writers of that era, they were all gay. And so he found a place where he fit in. And his really big thing was studying the spiritual implications of gay practice. And that was one of his early things he became known for is, is studying it, I think, probably, probably into like tantric kind of things, like, you know, some of the spiritual implications. And, you know, I mean, even Crowley sort of looked into that somewhat. But, uh, you know, that, he sort of got an identity for himself in it. But he also was just an incredibly bright person. And eventually came to know uh, Aldous Huxley, who, 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 everything I know, was not gay himself. He was married and had a son. But they were both two, you know, not only great minds, but they were very open-minded and did not feel constrained by any kind of prior cultural dogma whatsoever. And so the world was a blank slate to both of them. And, but, but really, Aldous Huxley sort of followed, I mean, they were peers, but he still sort of followed uh, Gerald Hurd in his influence to him. Hurd usually was into something well before Huxley was, and Hurd was older than him. And, and, and also, um, Hurd actually got a young man um, who sort of, became, it was a, like a, an heir to a large grocery fortune, and this this young man was sort of a I don't I wouldn't say ne'er do well, but you know he was living it up with the money he had. He didn't have to work, and Gerald Hurd was a more studious person, but he found a patron basically, and so I think they started with a more hands-on sexual relationship, and as Gerald Hurd grew in his spiritual stuff, he decided to basically sort of dive full into that and and be more of a um, a celibate uh, lifestyle. But but this guy still he still lived at his place and was his patron financially. So so therefore wealthy people were always the guys sort of paying the bills for Gerald Hurd's pursuit, so he didn't have to have a job. So I guess it would be natural that Gerald Hurd would try to package his belief system with a, a pro-wealth clientele because they were the ones who were paying his meal ticket. And he, so he didn't have a family you know, fortune like someone else, right. like Crowley or right. these people. He was dependent on this young man who, who was a, seemed like a very superficial kind of guy. He didn't fit in with the thinkers in their circles, but he was the meal ticket. And when they eventually made their way to Los Angeles, that was his, uh, I don't know if I'd call him lover at that point, but the, the younger man, his colleague, was the one who were paying all the bills. And, and Gerald Hurd lived in like a, almost a shack, almost like a shack on the property there in Los Angeles because he lived a very aesthetic lifestyle. So he kind of went from that libertine to the polar opposite. Well, you know, he, he had a dalliance in his youth, probably meeting with all those authors, probably sort of a golden age. 
but yeah. he got so centered on spiritual pursuits that a, a lot of Gnostic belief focuses on um, conquering and beating down the body. And because the body is evil and it's dirty and you've got to ascend beyond it. And so basically making the body uh, suffer as much as possible, they believe, has some spiritual benefit to it. And so he just lived in absolute, you know, simplicity and things like that for most of all of his life. But the, the main reason they initially came to America in 1937 on a ship, uh, uh, Aldous Huxley and his wife and son, and then Gerald Hurd and, and his friend, was they were pacifists, and they didn't want to participate in World War II. And they actively taught about that, about getting, you know, against getting involved with World War II, and they had their principles and beliefs, but they realized they were going to get drafted. And so, 37, they headed to America. And one of the main things that um, Hurd was really looking for was that he came to Duke University because he thought he was going to get a professorship there at Duke. Yeah. And the other thing he wanted to do was to meet with, I believe his name is J.H. Ryan, yep. who was <laughs> the guy who I believe pretty much sort of considered the father of ESP and parapsychology. Right, the the, the, guy, the Ryan Institute. Yeah, it's very yeah. I think he's the one that started those flashcards. Yes, where it had the little images, and you yep. you know somebody would have to envision what the image was and recite it uh, to show uh, psi ability. And so he went and met with him. He met with another person who was um, a channeler. And then I'm trying to remember. I I know he wrote about Bridie Murphy. Was that somebody else that? You all had ever heard of someone yes. who channeled yes. an actual Well, that was a key part, too. I think he tried to meet with the people involved in the channeling of Bridie Murphy and then wrote about them. But, but Gerald Hurd also wrote what may be the very, very first book in uf ufology. Uh, he wrote, uh, uh, is there something else watching? Is there another world watching or something uh -huh. like that? Uh -huh. And 1950... And uh, he had a weird belief that he thought that Mars <laughs> was ru was run by bees, uh -huh. that, that bees ran it, and <laughs> and which is so bizarre because that was sort of almost similar to the the theme of the quote Quatermass movies, <laughs> you know, like way ahead of it. So I wouldn't be surprised if Nigel Neal the uh, screenplay writer who's considered the greatest screenplay writer in British history didn't take some of the writing of Gerald Hurd who were well known in England to inspire that and he also wrote a book called A Taste of Honey which became the movie The Deadly Bees which uh, I think with Joan Collins was in it and I think that was even on MST3K one of those hard episodes to find but I wonder, I, how, I wonder you know, how he would feel about the murder hornets I don't know well they're just <laughs> spiritual parts from Mars <laughs> yeah, well, you know that's that's if you watch the movie uh, Quatermass in the Pit or the Americans the Five Million Miles to Earth, that's sort of just what they look like. They look like these ones who came over and genetically modified humans back in the caveman days. So bizarre story, but I mean, he was just an amazing guy. Wrote tons and tons yeah. of books on metaphysics. He wrote fiction. He wrote uh, supernatural horror. Um, 
But, it, you know, mostly it was his metaphysical things he did. And, and what most of the biographers that talked about him that were his devotees never could actually pin down what he believed. And you'd ask him, like, well, what yeah. is it that he's really saying is for sure going on? And he'd say, well, I, I, I really don't know, but he captivated me, and he was an amazing speaker. And I just know he has really, really deep wisdom, but they never could. And, and, and one thing they said that if you ever asked him a question, he never did ever really answer your question exactly. He would start talking about something completely different and somehow give the impression that actually it related somehow to what you asked uh, and like, like, it, like any good like any good guru that seems yeah, to be the exactly the it was a template yeah. it was the template and right. the all of these uh, super influential businessmen were eating out of his palm and and he would sort of give his lectures and they would come and just on, on the edge of their seats uh, even guys like Igor Stravinsky were followers of his Steve Allen the uh, TV guy you know who's founded the Tonight Show and uh, a host of other famous people. But, but, you know, one of the anecdotes I count in here was how um, you had people like uh, Greta Garbo, the old actress, yeah. and, um, uh, oh, who was the old hobo tramp? Um, the famous uh, actor in silent films. Charlie uh, Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin. Uh, would be yeah. with these guys and Aldous Huxley and and then Krishnamurti, who was the world's messiah savior of theosophy. Here they would they would all go on picnics and like sneak under the fence and go places until the cops round them up. Well, there was connections too with theosophy with like Annie Besant and right, right. She kind of involved with this whole little group. Well. A lot of it, it was, you know, because this was a little bit after her time. And so it was more through Krishnamurti, who they had designated as the world messiah. And then eventually Krishnamurti said, nah, I don't think I really am world messiah. But he still did his own spiritual uh, movement. And so these people were all connected together. But, you know, a lot of people think, oh, this is a 60s kind of thing. It's like, no. This was a 1930s and 40s kind of thing. Uh, it, it was it was all around. It was just this general milieu at the time. But just like like you said, I mean, it was the new burned over district. Right. I had uh, John Tenney kind of describe it on one on on this show as just like you know because you had the burned or, or over district in New York, and as people kind of moved west, California was the end point, and it just kind of stayed in California. Like well, you had you had through the 19th yeah. century these kind of utopian communities, and then the new age stuff kind of starts to take root in California. And I mean, I, like Manly P. Hall's around right. the same time, and, and these people all knew each other. Manly P. Hall yeah. and Gerald Hart knew each other. They were sort of traipsing on the same territory. Um, but but on the other on the other end, you had the reason Southern California was it wasn't just coming from eastern the u.s it was also coming from the far east and they were stopping on the west coast and i think one of the key events to the establishment of the eastern religion movement in north america and then ultimately the new age movement was the yes. 1895 congress of religions in chicago that was the very first time that people from you know people in buddhism and particularly hinduism came yeah, to the, really the, interact the much in america Right. 
And and what happened was there were words that became new parts of the American language, like nirvana and karma and things like that, all got established then. And then the reason why, not only was it by proximity closer, but there were a few women, I don't know why it's usually wealthy women, but they became patrons of these guys. And they said, why don't you stay here in America, out here in California, they happen to live in California, and we will build your ashrams here. Uh, there, or say in Oregon, for example. And so part of that East Coast, or the West Coast establishment of that was because it just so happened the wealthy, wealthy patrons lived there, and that's where it solidified. And places like, I think it's Ojai, I don't know how you pronounce it there in, in uh, California, just just north of Los Angeles, that became another major place where they congregated as well, too. And so that was really the origins, and like I get into the in the book, but the thing was it was the big business people in Southern California who were considered very, very conservative yeah. were the guys that really bankrolled this. Right, right. And, and Heard also, because we, we might have glossed over this a little bit, but Heard also wrote for, I guess, Faith and Family. Right. He was like their real guru of the, and this is again for clergy. Yeah. Uh, and this, this was what, you know, what he, what he wrote for. And it, it, when you read his newsletters, because you can still find them of all places on, um, uh, Lou Rockwell's website, which, which is the Mises Institute, which is actually at Auburn university. But that is, the modern day, probably most major home of libertarianism in America. Uh, you know, he is a guy who's real close to to Ron Paul and things like that. Um, though those newsletters are still archived at at that website, and in there, you can read the stuff from uh, you know from him, Gerald Hurd, and they're just as murky. They sound really, really wise. They sound really, really deep. Until you try to pin down on what it is exactly that they're saying. <laughs> yeah, what's he talking about? Yeah, but they really captivate because <laughs> they sound like they're so confident in what they're uh -huh. saying. But clergy, I mean, you, you've got like the major bulk of clergy in America all reading this and being influenced by it. And then they would sneak in something about how, you know, privatization is right and, and you know, government jobs are wrong. And, you know, and it would all be merged together. And so everybody took the, they took poison and the sugar all in one scoop. And well, how did it, Gerald Hurd really? I want to know how Gerald Hurd really like articulated his politics, or what, do you think he's just more of an opportunist, or did did he have like a spiritual connection to to these uh, libertarian politics? It it was it was weird because it almost seemed to me, and you know, and I'm not an expert on Gerald Hurd. But from what I read of his work, he almost just sort of stapled it on the end of it. I never yeah. found a super consistency of why his metaphysical approaches would in instinctively lead you to, you know, pro-privatization and against government assistance or whatever. The only thing that I could remotely connect the two is being a free spirit of self-determination. Right. And so Versus his self-determination, kind of collectivist, communist thing that well, and, and of which they, spirituality potential, right? Of which they were trying to also conflate organized religion with that. That like right. if you were like a free spirit that were following your own path, you would want to do that economically and spiritually as well too. And I'm not even totally opposed to that, but I don't think necessarily. I think 
his belief, like a lot of people in New Age things, were not so much that they were just totally free to anything, whatever hit them that seemed true. But there's a strong reactionary element to it. A lot of people you'll find had a bad experience at organized religion, and that included uh, Gerald Hurd, who was being groomed to be an Episcopal priest when he was younger, like other relatives he had. But I think his homosexuality and dealing with that and the fact that that was completely not tolerated in his culture led him to say, okay, I'm going to walk a new path in everything. And I wouldn't call him necessarily hostile to organized religion. He could have been much more hostile. But what he was is he just almost just trivialized it like that's simple-minded thinking. And he was pursuing something far deeper. The problem is when people do that, and this is true with a lot of Gnostic pursuit of the pursuit of higher wisdom, is it basically just becomes, in a sense, nonsense after a while. There's nothing you can hang your hat on. There's nothing that's really concrete. These people just you know, migrate back and forth to whatever. It becomes almost an impulsive sensory thing. And, and he is a microcosm of that. If you look at his life, he, he, he tried all these things to mean well. He started his own um, co- uh, commune uh, called, was it the Corin Institute, I believe? But anyway, that was the one where Bill Wilson, the founder of AA, was coming to get his alternative religion teaching and things like that. Uh, but uh, Trabuc- Trabuco Institute, that's what it was. It was out in the middle of nowhere, and it ended up being a disaster because it was really unsupportable. Uh, I mean, they really, even living communally, they couldn't make ends meet without external support. And so he, he had all these things he did that never really just came to co- complete fruition. But e- even in spite of that, he had all of this lasting effect on the people who were at the founding, not only of the libertarian movement, but also what even is embedded itself in conservative Christianity through the clergy. Right. And, and, and it seems to me that some of these guys, especially Leonard Reed, were borrowing these things from him, from Heard, And they were also, look, it, it's almost like, it's not specifically that it's a Christian spirituality, but it's like any kind of spirituality will do that supports our means and supports our ends, such as what would later become prosperity gospel, right? The new right. thought, the new thought right. movement, and these these ideas that are like very st- and as we talked about, and as it, uh, like then there's uh, a book by Adam Parfrey that goes into this about how that's all based in hermeticism and in the occult. And so, like, they borrow these ideas and say, well, that suits our our ends. That kind of right. justifies what we're looking at. And so that's come down into Christianity, you guys like Joel Osteen and, and the prosperity gospel now. Right. Oh, yeah. Mor- uh, Mormon Vincent Peale being the biggest, like we mentioned before, you know, Trump's pastor growing up. Well, well Reed would be, would be the one most closely connected to what we would think of New Thought. Um there, there's a section. If, if would you mind if I just read like yeah, a paragraph? Go yeah, go Th- this it. was sort of this gets into sort of how Reed delved into the New Thought, like promoting you know business writing, business success, and his spiritual elements. Uh, I wrote in here that Leonard Reed was not so bashful in publicly expressing the mysticism he felt was an important part of the libertarian message. Uh, 
of this cabal of ideological promoters. It, his 1962 book, Elements of Libertarian Leadership, extolled a theological, quote, creative force that mystics like Rudolf Steiner uh, said could be mastered by those with the proper spiritual disciplines. These daily disciplines of mind and subconscious control that Reed would recommend to somehow form the crux of the development of the successful libertarian individual society seem to comprise the self-affirmations and mental conditioning akin to the new thought spiritual movement of mind over matter promoted by Norman Vincent Peale and other self-help religious and secular leaders, the televangelist and faith healer celebrities, modern occult movements like The Secret, and many other popular evangelical leaders like Joel Osteen and megachurch leaders today. Reed recommended lengthy periods of daily focused meditation on objects, quote, to free one from exterior influences like traditions, social positions, professions, nationalities, unquote. To do things ritually daily that have no purpose, like walking around the perimeter of a room, thinking events in one's life to determine a hidden instructional guidance and message to them. With Reed using a supposed legend from Jesus that actually comes from Zen Buddhism, and then warns that, quote, no one should even consider these exercises who are not temperamentally and spiritually ready and determined to become an improved person at whatever cost. To toy with these untapped and potentially powerful forces within one's own person is actually dangerous. Now, his biographer adds that, yes, this is the work of a man whose organization was more commonly concerned with wage and price supports, tariffs, taxation, union perfidy, the provision of public services, and other mundane matters. And, and I add that yet uh, Reed felt the need to employ additional subliminal mind control techniques rather than mere superior logic and reasoning. So, you, you know, when you look at what we know of the public relations of the libertarian movement, it's always been focused on a secular reason uh, base, and that's why the main flagship magazine of libertarian libertarian movement is Reason Magazine, rather than you know crazy superstitions of religion and things like that. But yet, the guys who were the founding fathers of it, at least half of the main founders, were using all of these deep spiritual techniques. So they were sort of like a personal dichotomy themselves. And what I find interesting, and I don't know, Sir Fiel, if some of this sort of rang a bell with some of your other New Thought people that you've studied, but, but what's interesting is how hard he's selling these techniques. I mean, he talked about things like just walking, making laps around the perimeter of a room, that somehow it did something spiritually to you. And he said that basically that if you weren't ready to properly use them in a proper way, it would be actually dangerous to put these things into effect. And now that could all be showmanship, you know, to try, try to sell a record album, you know, where he's giving these techniques or, or a yeah. book or whatever. But it, it, if they really believe this stuff, it's, it makes me wonder what they thought they were really tapping into. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. And there's also their, um, there's also their involvement with LSD too. 
which as right. we kind of mentioned before, but they kind of had this like real kind of elitist attitude about it. Oh yeah, they didn't want the common people to get it, and that's why Mullendore got real upset. Was when t- uh, Timothy Leary sort of betrayed them late in the ball game because they'd been using it for like a decade. And all of a sudden, he started letting young people have it. And I thought, oh, well, that ruined that. Now they're going to have the riffraff get it when it was meant just for the elites to have. And they even wrote about how they thought LSD could be used to basically extract more work out of people. They thought, you know, thinking like a businessman, they thought, well, the only thing that would be of real value here is if you can somehow get greater productivity out of your drone workers. And that's why they thought LSD could somehow be used for that purpose. Now, they were looking for some kind of deeper consciousness and things like that. And when they got real depressed because these terrible extreme liberals like Eisenhower got elected and they thought all was lost, they retreated more into LSD stuff because they thought all was lost in the world. You know, like our country couldn't make it another 10 years, you know, with that. And so it really makes me wonder when you have – Similar conservatives today, let's say if they lost an election or two, what are they going to turn to? What are what are they going to do if they feel like they're on the outs for a while? What's going to motivate them uh, in this? Um, you know, when you mention LSD, one of the guys that I'm going to be talking about more in volume two, and I mentioned him here, was a guy by the name of Al Hubbard. And that's why the index on the paperback is 19 pages of names and terms in here. It took me a month just to develop the index for this book. Um, but Al Hubbard is a guy wow. who people <laughs> need need to know what... There's no telling everything this one guy was involved in. He was, was providing massive, massive amounts of LSD for the CIA. He had all sorts of intrigue going on in intelligence with other even non-American organizations... And I just briefly mentioned him in this book, and I'll cover more. But I don't know. Has Al Hubbard ever come up in your all's discussions? I've never really heard of Al Hubbard. Well, this Elron Elron Hubbard I've heard of. Well, I don't that's know if these wrong, guys are related. The, that's the wrong Hubbard. I think Al is a Canadian, but um, this guy is one of these ones where all points go through Al Hubbard, and he was bringing in tons of LSD and was involved in all sorts of intelligence intrigue, a lot of it outside of the CIA. And there's much more to be discovered about this guy. There was another guy, there was a Dr. Osman in, in Canada, who was a, one of the major guys who first got LSD use into these communities. And Gerald Hurd was the one who really introduced it and made it more mainstream even amongst these elites. So Gerald Hurd was the one that he, he got, um, he sort of introduced uh, uh, Aldous Huxley to it. And then, you know, Aldous Huxley uh, wrote The Doors of Perception, which is where The Doors, the rock band, got their name from. Right. And, and you know, he triggered all of this movement, but it was all for them to use quietly. And right. see, all of these, this rat pack of these mystics, libertarian mystics, big businessmen, formed this group called the Wayfarers to pursue these things. And I would love to ever have their notes of what they latched onto. I guess it's been lost to time, unless there's a memoir. But one of the places they met 
to go do all of these things was at Bohemian Grove. Yeah. And, and Bohemian Grove was where they actually, uh, and I, I'm assuming Gerald Hurd actually somehow was brought there at least as a guest. He certainly wasn't a businessman. Well, and he, could, he couldn't have afforded it on his own. But I, I think he may have been a guest. I know the other members certainly were because uh, uh, Mullendore was a regular member. He was an official member of Bohemian Grove. Well, there was a certain amount just like there was definitely an elitism there in this idea that, you know, they could use use LSD and have some kind of um, special knowledge, essentially. Right. And then later on, you get guys like Ken Kesey and Timothy right. Leary, and it kind of just goes down to, I guess, to what they would consider the rabble, right? And I was kind of making the there there now is really kind of a movement with like you know DMT and and all this and also like microdosing right and like Silicon Valley so there is still a certain amount of elitism that's involved and then also too you mentioned in the last episode we had you on that uh, Gerald Hurd also turned on like uh, Henry Luce right <laughs> right from Time Magazine the arch conservative from yeah. Time Magazine yeah right right and and his his wife, who was a congresswoman, yeah, and who uh, I wrote about another one of my books, was seduced by uh, uh, Roald Dahl, you know, who did the Phantom Toll Booth, you know, and those other children's books. But he was part of that operation to get America into World War II. Uh, and they answered to intrepid probably the most famous secret agent of all time. And Ian Fleming, who wrote the James Bond novels, he and Roald Dahl together came over and operated it out of the Rockefeller Center. And it was a psyop against America. And so Roald Dahl, I guess, was considered a handsome, you know, flyer in those days. And so he had lots of affairs with the socialites in America, and one of them was her. But you see the... Uh, the common denominator is Gerald Hurd. Gerald Hurd was the guy who got them all involved, as well as the founder of uh, AA, Bill Wilson. Right. They were very, very close. And, and Gerald Hurd was the one who oversaw Bill Wilson's first LSD use uh, at that point. And that's how I first heard of Gerald Hurd. In my research for this book, when one time his name came up on something, I said, you know, I have heard that name. Where did I hear from and then I went back and looked to the Notorious Future Quake show where I talked about AA. And some lady came on, and she had a bunch of dirt and things. And then I had to do my own research, and then I found out about the stuff he did with Hen Bane and um, you know the stuff that the witches used and stuff like that to simulate flying. And it was part of the Belladonna cure he used. That was his spiritual experience. And then he went to LSD as a way to recreate that spiritual experience he had had with the Hen Bane and the other entheogens and really wanted to sort of recreate that experience. But, but the thing with Bill Wilson, and I write about this a lot in the book, was that uh, his big thing, he had to, what he called the spook room where he used Ouija boards and had seances regularly, and he would have a lot of his sponsors from the Rockefeller uh, Foundation come there when he would have it. But one of his main people he he worked with on this stuff was uh, Edmund Opitz, the priest that you mentioned earlier when you read uh, Adam. 
And he was the guy who wrote down a lot of what Bill Wilson also wrote that he didn't put in his biography about, you know, um, I mean, Bill Wilson recorded the same thing, but he also wrote this stuff down about how he had channeled the 12 steps from some St. Boniface from the 15th century and that he would have materialized guys like old sea captains who had drowned at sea. Yeah. And then they would later find evidence that the guy really did exist, and it really was what he told right. him. And, and I mean, it freaked out all the people who knew him. And Edmund Opitz was a connection between the um, these libertarian guys and Bill Wilson. But Bill Wilson actually traveled out west to go to the Trabuco College that Gerald Hurd had founded to be his spiritual guru. So it's just an amazing rat pack of people who had an indelible impact on our society. And what's interesting is the conservative society and conservative beliefs were actually established by these guys. Yeah, it's amazing that these conservative beliefs and it's gone down to Christian libertarianism and it's kind of in its, in its trace to establishing establishing Christianity as, as, as a bulwark against communism, as a bulwark against the New Deal and all this kind of stuff. It's pretty amazing. these guys like Gerald Hurd how do you tie that in to Gnosticism to this kind of like ancient Christian heresy of Gnosticism well the reason why I brought it into the book is that when I talked earlier about the Pharisees in the earlier part of the book and their their dangers and the fact that this emphasis on the rich and money was something you know you would get the impression from my writing is that well that's always going to be associated with ultra right ultra legalistic hyper fundamentalist belief and that might be an impression one gets and what I wanted to make clear through these characters in the 20th century is that when we start looking for culprits we can sometimes get too myopic and realize that sometimes they work through different channels than you would think. And Gnosticism sort of works in a, in a different approach. Um, you know, fundamentalism and the kind of thing that, 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 that uh, you would picture Pharisees doing are really trying to, at least overtly in the public, trying to focus on holiness and holy living and you know, controlling the body and these other kind of things like this. And that is like we think of culture warrior kind of stuff, the puritanical kind of thing. But then you got the Gnostic side that's not so much the emphasis on the body and controlling the body. It's the emphasis on wisdom. And so rather than just personal piety being 
the emphasis of your spiritual expression. The Gnostic approach is to focus on looking for deeper wisdom as the state of being complete. But uh, and I and I try to put some clinical definitions at the beginning of that chapter of Gnosticism uh, and how it evolved. But but basically, I'm sure probably many of your listeners know more about it than I do. But uh, some of the fundamental tenets of Gnosticism is that to try to explain why there's evil in this world, the Bible has its own approach about the fall and about the ramifications of you know, um, doing sin and things like that and what happens. In the Gnostic world, they don't take personal responsibility for what humanity has done and its implications. They blame somebody else. And so what they blame is is the creator. And they have this problem in that they want to believe that God is pure and whole and great, but then they see all the evil in the world, which they want to blame on the creator and not on themselves. And so they come up with this whole belief of emanations. And for some reason, these emanations of spirit beings all are slightly less perfect than what made them. It's almost like how when you keep copying a videotape and every generation of videotape is a little more messed up than the one before or, you know, entropy or anything else in humanity. And uh, so they believe that this bottom rung of gods that were created, sub, 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 sub created, was something called the Demiurge, who really is a pretty crummy kind of person and very self-centered and insecure and created a bad copy of the world, the universe, that we're stuck in. And so the whole premise of Gnosticism is that, one, you have to have the wisdom to learn that that's exactly how it really is. And then after you learn that, you learn these secret techniques to be able to get past this big evil creator god who is called the Demiurge, but they would even say that the Jehovah of the Bible is that god, and to get onto some higher, purer planes. And it even goes so far as they believe that these gods are in like the outer planets and beyond, and you have to learn the names of each of these entities to be able to express the names to then control them to move on in higher elevations of depth and understanding. Which is really no different than you go back to the mystery religions of Egypt. I mean, that's what uh, Isis did. Isis learned the name of Ra so she could control him to resurrect Horus. Um, Not only the ancient Babylonian religions taught this, but if you look in Kabbalah, the Merkabah literature, it's all about learning the names of these emanations of God or supernatural beings so you can control them. It's, it's really an old story, and um, that's why even in Jesus' day, because the magical stuff they did back in Jesus' day was all about naming demons so that you could control them, and uh, they would say, well, in whose name do you cast out these demons and things like that? And in fact, even some of what you see in the TV evangelist kind of stuff today, they've tried to resurrect that, which is extremely dangerous. And so the, the key in that Gnosticism is that union with God is only just based upon learning something that at least the lower level God didn't want you to know and is an obstacle to you. 
and you have to basically outsmart them and to figure out some kind of way to know something higher. And you've never totally arrived. You have to keep thinking, well, maybe there's something smarter and then something beyond that. And then so you have to find some text that you think maybe holds some clues to deeper knowledge, and there's no way to verify it. There's no way to really be sure that you got any of it. So you, you keep doing it, and everybody sort of pursues their own thing. And w what it does do is it takes away any kind of accountability you have to a creator for your actions, um, any kind of personal relationship there. And it really becomes more of a self-centered, uh, self-help course. And I'm trivializing it somewhat. The problem is it's so hard to pin down Gnostics because they're a moving target. It's like whack-a-mole. You know, you could even use terms that sound Christian in nature like Christ or other things like this. And they mean a completely different thing to them. And when you ask for specifics, it'll continue to migrate. And so well, we're talking, it's Christ, a very, it was a very diverse group. Right, right. And intentionally so. together called Gnostics. Right. You, you and explored that, all the different, you know, t types. And, and they will forever be further and further because there is not a dogma. It's a very personal kind of thing. And nobody's going to say, well, that's wrong. And this is what's right. There's not. There's no objective truth. It's like, well, that's that's your truth. This is my truth. And there's never any kind of litmus test to measure against. It was like what I would think if you were in engineering and you never knew that there was a scale that was the right size scale to measure against. Everybody would use their own philosophy and methodology to make everything, and nobody's buildings would match, or you know, you couldn't build anything on it because. Everybody's doing but, their own thing, yeah. and that's sort of a lot of a lot of what it is. But it's it's. But it's wouldn't really it make sense that 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 became that that those influences have become so large because they really reflect our society, or the, vice versa, our individual society. freedom. They made our society. Pursuit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they and first of all, I mean the the fact of self determination spiritually. I wholeheartedly agree with that. In fact, the people who were my spiritual descendants were killed by both the Protestants and the Catholics because they both could get together and kill the people where I came from, the radical reformers, because they believed in self-determination spiritually. But at the same time, even though we might all have the freedom in being able to determine objective truth, there was still a belief that there was an objective truth. And there was latitude given on being able to study you know, other revelations to be able to glean from it, you know, exactly the, the fine print, you might say. But there was a basic understanding. But Gnosticism is basically a glorification. It, it's a backdoor way for glorification of self because you sort of, you don't really earn accountable to anybody. Like somebody did something for me and I'm indebted to them. It's like I'm smart enough that I figured this out. It's in the similar kind of way that you get the Puritan or the Pharisee that says, because I'm living so piously, I've earned good favor with God myself. Well, so the Gnostics would say that it's recognizing the divinity in man. Right. And that would be, that would go straight back if you, if you go to a biblical narrative, that would come right out of the Garden of Eden. Because... Yep. Absolutely. That's what was taught with the apple was if you eat this apple, you will become wise and you will become like God. 
So then the dilemma, and that's why this, this is a real dilemma. Somebody's lying and somebody's telling the truth. And well, the thing sort I of think like about it, though, is that yeah. these 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 figures they recognized a spiritual crisis in civilization, and yeah. I think a lot of them thought that they need to help engineer some kind of spirituality that will fit the mode of production. You know, I'm almost yeah. in like a Marxist way of looking at things. The economics come first, yeah, and then the, the social conditions revolve around that. So. I mean, there really was a kind of crisis in in civilization at that time, a spiritual crisis, and people were becoming less spiritual, and that the alternative of just a strictly materialist view yeah. was very dangerous, and we saw it culminate, I guess, in the atomic bomb. I mean, what the yeah. scientific establishment guided without spirituality, you know, that's the, at least that's like the right. popular conception of it, but, you know, don't you think some of these people were just trying to solve a dilemma and because they're in these elite positions they were might have you know might might have just been trying to figure out uh you know ways to to tailor a spirituality for this new age i mean i guess that's well i think i think there's a matrix there rather than a yes no good bad there's a matrix of responses and i would say like on one side of the spectrum you take a gerald hurd who I think, at least in his own mind, he really did care about other people, and he he was against war, and he wanted people to be better. I also think that he had an early hurt because of some of his his probably sexual challenges he had, and he was put in a a bad spot because he knew the rejection he would feel within traditional culture, and so along with his trying to fit in with who he thought he was sexually, he also felt like he had to chart a new path spiritually at the same time. But I don't think he had any kind of selfish animosity that I could tell too much. But on the other hand, you take a guy like Mullendore and these other big wealthy industrialists, they were pursuing something else, but they could care less about their fellow man or about suffering of somebody else. That never came up in their dialogue. With them, it was all about what impacts the profit margin in what I'm doing and the amount of it. It it never was a case of trying to solve world problems. You know, refugees was never something that was something they wrung their hands over or the well-being of, you know, poverty in Africa, for example. It was about they were worried that the industrialist and the age of, of the industrial age – could be somehow curtailed the excess profits and the other things by these goody two-shoes in the social gospel and New Deal. So, you know, they're both pursuing some kind of unorthodox religious approach for, for very different motives, for, for very different reasons, and I think that's a good lesson learned. Now, on the other hand, you've got people of very traditional orthodox beliefs that cared a whole lot about their neighbor and what was happening in the world and atomic weapons. You know, guys like Niebauer and, uh, oh, the one who was killed in Nazi Germany. I'm, I'm, well, yeah, these and, and people like them that, that really did care about being relevant in the 20th century, about where the world was going. You had hyper-fundamentalists that were still wrapped around the, you know, 
around the axle over the monkey scopes trial and we're still living in the distant past and you know we're scared of anything of education or new science or knowledge or whatever like that so you know i don't see it was so much that the message from before was the problem the real problem was with a lot of the message bearers and the people who come up with something new you know if you're going to have something new like for example when i used to patent things and i'd have a new technology the onus was on me to be able to prove that it offered something more concrete and better than what it replaced if if i talk very nebulous like you know it's just not good that our inventions are limited by this capability or that and there ought to be something better that didn't cut it i would have to show something that showed here's how it's definitely better and how it solves problems and, and to be able to do it in a convincing way. And I think if somebody offers some new system, there, there should be some onus on them to show here's why it seems to be real and here how it's real and more than just not making us feel guilty. Uh, and maybe but, this I mean, is the you, engineer may talk. America. Religious experimentation is the most American thing, man. So, I mean, yeah. naturally, with with you know, a new century, too, and the newest place in the world in Southern California at the time, right. I mean, religious experimentation is just as American as apple pie. Well, you know, I support that. I support it. I I come from a history of the radical reformers who believed in self-determination in your spiritual beliefs, and they paid for it with their lives. And all of the people who believed the same Bible they did were the ones who killed them. So, you know, I'm right there with them, and I also believe that people have a right to do whatever. You know, they don't hurt anybody else. They have a right to do whatever they want. And, and you know, I'd like for them to afford me the same privilege, and I don't even mind having a dialogue and discussion respectful you know, between parties, we can learn from each other. I think that's all healthy. Um, and, and I also think, you know, a book like Occult America was useful to me because what, what we see David Barton and these people spinning about this fake history about America is really not borne by the facts. America is a Petri dish of all sorts of ideologies, political and spiritual, and they've all become part of the fabric of who we are and some of those things have become a part of who we are those of us who think we're more mainstream that you know some of it becomes subconscious things that come into part of our you know like people who won't walk under a ladder or you know suspicious of a black cat or whatever you know some of that's old country beliefs but but a lot of that is stuff that has worked in uh from some of these experimental belief systems but for me now again i may be thinking like a scientist here but for me to change horses on any of these things, and that goes for political views or spiritual views or anything else, I want to be open-minded to learn something that's better. But I also will put the onus on it that you've got to at least offer me something that's more tangible and that shows me something that can convince me is better than what I'm hanging on to. What I think you really point out is that for, for people who do you know, who are still a part of these traditional religions, that they they should understand how unorthodox many of the people have shaped right. the mainstream politicized Christianity. Really I were. agree. I agree. And I think people who aren't so tied into that orthodox religion accept that easier. You know, they don't have the hang-ups about resisting accepting that. 
And so that message is more of a bitter, bitter, bitter pill to people who come from my background, who come from a more orthodox environment, to recognize that some of these people they venerate and love, like, you know, the Founding Fathers. I mean, even people like Chris Pinto have pointed out that these guys really didn't believe all the stuff like the fairy tales we've been told. Yeah. And, and I believe it's important for us to grow as individuals to debunk a lot of that stuff. I think it's healthy to do that. I don't want to believe a lie. You know, if whatever I believe spiritually could be proved to be a lie, then somebody would do me a favor to, to teach me that. If they could eventually show it, I want to be in line with the truth. And I think when we hold on to stuff that's a lie, even if people think it's sort of harmless, I think it does harm in ways that we don't even imagine. And the, the big crux of the book that I've written is that particularly people of my faith tradition don't understand how a financial money interest found all sorts of creative ways to be a worm in their brain. And they didn't realize right. how they got through through the back door and Trojan horses and people of very, very diverse beliefs. And, and, and really, they're very, very undiscerning in vetting people and vetting ideas that come into them. And that's why, you know, I go back to the beginning of my book. People will take these strangers, and this, these people in the media are just strangers to us, and, and they'll take their, their talking points and they'll recite them to argue to the death with another believer about something and they don't even remember what Jesus said about it or, you know, a prophet or apostle or whatever, but they'll, they'll say what these strangers do and they don't know who these people in the media who pays their salary. They don't know the money that runs their operation. And, and in this book, I go through this, these groups of these people who most of us didn't know about that shaped the 20th century and who they got their money from and the big business people pulling the strings. Well, let me let me ask you this before we end. But and you and I have talked about this a lot off air. But how do you think that your book is going to be received by the people that you know this the normal the the kind of the church going yeah right wing media uh, listening watching folks. I mean, how do you think that it's going to that, that that, do you think it's going to wake some people up or do you think that it's going to that somebody's going to be like I don't have time to they, they, yeah. they, or they just don't want to hear it right you know, you've had reactions right you've had some well, reactions yeah, it, like when that when you first already. started saying that those normal people are, it made me think of Bud from Repo Man you remember when he said see those normal people over there I hate them good old, <laughs> good old, good old Bud of the Repo Man code yeah uh, Actually, I've already had some data already, and it's just been out a few weeks. You know, this is only my second interview. And I had a mailing list of about 300 people who had asked to be notified when my book was, you know, books were out because they were big fans of Future Quake. And they really, really wanted it and kept pestering me to get a book out and couldn't wait to get it and wanted to make sure they heard. And so I went and sent a mailing out to about 300 of them. And I think a few of them have gotten a book, uh, and I appreciate the ones who did very, very much. There's been a, a couple of my friends that's bought more than one copy, and I appreciated that very much. But I had some of them who just flamed me and didn't even know enough of what the book was about. They hadn't even gotten a book, okay, and just tore into me. Um, just the title, probably. 
Yeah, yeah, or just so, any kind of general principle of it. They've they've gone after me. A lot of the people I've never heard from. I've had just a a couple of good reviews on Amazon. The rest of it has gone into a black hole. Now, did the people read it? Are they still reading it? I know it's a long. I mean, it's basically 428 pages with the forward, so it's you know a little bit of a read. But I haven't you know heard that much. Uh, the only other interview I did was on Iron Show, and Johnny had definitely wanted me for a long time ago to. He wanted me to be one of the first ones, you know, to go to his show when it came out, and and his friend Mark, who's on the show, who we know. Um, I wasn't sure how he might take it because you know he comes from more conventional training, Christian training, but he found at least the sections that he read were quite transformative, and it was a big encouragement to me. But his comments were far outweighed by the other people I've heard who refused to even get to the sections that you two read. And I had asked people, I said, look, hang, hang with it. It's funny, the, the Christian crowd, the part they really hate about this book is the part where I quote Jesus. That's the irony of it. The, the people where I just quote Jesus verbatim or the apostles, yeah. <laughs> that part they really hate. And I just say, well, maybe if you can survive all right. the stuff about Jesus that you don't like, Christian, and get and get to read the weird history part, which is very <laughs> lengthy too, you know, about the first forty percent is is me sort of comparing how how what the people, the founders of our faith, believed, and then what they hear on talk radio, and how different they are. Just and then the historical section is to figure out what went wrong, how did that happen, and it's a fascinating story in my view. Um, but most of them give up. They just simply will not read further. And that's why I'm so thankful for listeners like Conspiranormal listeners, because they get to be more some of the, the few friends I have. Uh, yeah, we, we do have some really... Well, and they're open-minded. You know, listeners out there. a lot of them aren't hyper-religious. And I can understand some of their heartburn with stuff. I could certainly empathize with them. Uh, but they uh, they appreciate someone who's genuine and who's trying to add something, you know, a value. And that's what my goal is. I don't know if I accomplished it, but that's my goal. But they appreciate that. And they're not constantly using litmus tests on people. And that's what I appreciate about you and Surfy all both is that you'll give somebody a listen and then, you know, you all are smart people. You'll sift through stuff. But, you know, there's some other guys that we know that come from more of the christian podcasting world and you know they've known me for decades and they've been on my show in the past i've been on theirs we've spoken at conferences side by side and you know i know there's basically no chance i'm going to end up on any of their forums hmm. and as Whoa. far as i know i haven't denied the faith as far right. as i know <laughs> all i've done is that i touched some third rails of not the faith, but of the cultural and political connections that they welded to it that didn't right. belong. Right. And that's the. Mm-hmm. That's and the I think they, they feel more comfortable if I deny Jesus we, than if I deny those things. That's the impression I get. Wow. <laughs> well, what, what would you say you to say, the non church going folk and even the you know, people who identify as non Christians? Why, why, why is it important to. Uh, to read this book or yeah. you know, other other areas of this interest, this uh, I, stuff. 
What would yeah, you? What would you like say me? <laughs> you know, I've sort of been put in their camp or lower than heathen. So you know, I'm hoping they'll accept me in the club. Um, well, I'm glad you all said this because I wanted to just tell them. And in fact, in the early part of the book, I address them at the beginning of the book, and I tell them how honored I am that they would take their valuable time to consider my foolishness and what I write in here and use their own discerning eye and to glean from it what they find is valuable. But what I'll, what I'll tell them I hope they can get out of it is that I'm airing some sort of dirty laundry from a community that I come from that's one of the most influential segments of our society. So it affects them as almost as much as it affects me. I mean, we have people in national office based upon people from this background that I talk about in this book that affects their daily life, even though they don't yeah. believe the same thing spiritually, but they still are impacted by it. And I guess the other thing why I'd really like people, since you asked, to, to something constructive to get out of this book. What, one thing, people like that, if they read, particularly the, the first part of the book, they're going to find out that what the founder of the faith taught was nothing like the bigots that they see all the time on TV or on Christian radio or, you know, national cable, that what they see there is nothing like the founder of the faith said. In fact, it's the opposite. So the reason that they can't stand with disgust what they see on TV is a good thing. And it shows that they have high standards and that they don't like BS, and they want genuine, and they have a right to expect something genuine, and I'm right there with them. And what the first part of this book show them, if they care to read, is that what, what's, was, what was real and what was taught is something about any of your guests I know I think would shake their heads and say, that makes good sense. You need to care about your neighbor. You need to care about somebody who's down and out or, or didn't get a fair shake because of where they were born in the ghetto or where they were, you know, a refugee or something like that. It makes good sense that you would care. If you're a decent person, you're going to care about them. And, and you're not going to cater to the wealthy. And you're not going to cater to those who want to exploit other people. And that there should be protections of our environment because pollution affects everybody. And there ought to be protection for workers. And of all your decent listeners, they need to know that that does not make them a heathen. That makes them a good person that thinks like God when they think those things. But the next part of the book, hopefully, when they see these people and they scratch their head, when they see these people that are elected in office with the religious right behind them and pushing these people who are – they're just disgusting. They're so self-centered. They're so money-centered. They don't care how it impacts anybody else, anybody who is vulnerable, anybody down on their luck. They could care less. Hopefully, the history part of this book will show that these, these poor people were duped. Now, they're ultimately responsible for whatever kind of foolishness they believe. But, but there were some people who had an agenda, particularly in the 20th century. Everything wasn't invented in the 20th century. They just took it to a new level, and in the age of mass media, were far more effective to get people and to sell them this pro-big business, pro-wealth class, don't care about anybody. It's a very Darwinistic survival of the fittest teachings. I mean, that's basically what it is. 
that there was a a plan to indoctrinate people through the pulpits, and it was so subtle they didn't even pick up on it. And so I'm hoping it promotes them to understand mm. the crazy stuff that their neighbors are doing. It still means it needs to be fixed, and they need to be involved. But one constructive thing they could do is if they got a copy of my book, and I don't mean to sound like I'm trying to sell like survival buckets like Jim Baker or something on here, but <laughs> but if they got it and if they are like me and they have very, very tense family get-togethers or they may have – relatives, parents or whatever that are pretty hardcore traditional religious types and are, you know, got their hats on and making America great and everything else and they're it it just descends into terrible stuff and you know and then you leave and you think, man, I wish I would have said this. I wish I could have said this in a way they would have understood or put them on the spot or you know, how can they be so hateful of people? A book like this if you if you maybe sort of read it yourself to find out here's how they got to thinking the way they did, and, and here's why, and then give them to one of your relatives or your mom or dad or whoever, and say read this first and let's talk about it, because you know when you talk face to face when it's family at least my experience, it's hard to have a re- mutually respectful thing because they say oh your little brother or your little sister or whatever what what do you know you know why would i even listen to you but you give them a book and you let them just go home and read it and if they don't throw it across the room and they start seeing how easily they could have been duped on stuff and it's non-threatening it's not like they have to say okay little sister little brother you were right okay uncle i didn't know that you know nobody likes to do that admit it with a sibling but or child but if they get this book and in their privacy and they're reading it, there's a chance maybe that they can have a little bit deeper understanding of how we got where we are. And it's in their language. I use yeah. the Bible, you know, Christian Bible kind of talking to show them that they, they, they flunk their own faith. What, what they say they believe, they're not even consistent with what, what that says. And use it in a language that they can understand and maybe facilitate when you all get back together to say, well, let's talk about some of this stuff. What do you think about this? And that's what my hope is, is that something constructive where we can, you know, old-fashioned, like the old fundamentalists say, repentance. It's like, well, I was wrong on that. I was wrong to think that all people who are poor are lazy. Or, you know, they're all trying to take advantage and buy T-bone steaks with their welfare check. All all immigrants want to come, just take my job, and they're going to bring in their weird religions in here. Or if you believe that we shouldn't rape the environment for every little bit, well, then you must be an earth worshiper. You know, and I could go on and on. Or the government is all evil. Anything the government does is by definition evil, and there should be nothing to help people. It should all be charity. And when I feel like it, and on Christmas Eve, I'll write a check and pull the limousine in front of the shelter and hand them a check in front of the cameras, and I've done my bit. You know, when they look at this, there's nothing to justify from from their faith or from their history. To, to justify that kind of thinking. And so I'd like to see some old-fashioned repentance. I had to repent myself. You know, I was one of these guys who used to go down in front of Fox and Friends there in New York, you know, down there in 
waved in front of the window and watched all that <laughs> stuff on TV. You know, I mean, it took the future quick experience to start opening a process for me to start questioning my own culture. And it's still ongoing. It's gone far enough now that I've alienated myself from most of it. And I haven't d- denied a single part of the faith, but I'm still persona non grata. So, you know, that's what I hope. But, you know, I'm asking your, your, your quote heathens to be the bigger men and bigger women than the Christian types. I'm asking them to take the high ground and to try to reach out and try to help these people who didn't think through stuff. And they could maybe do something good because I have a high opinion of the people who are your listeners. And if they might get a copy of this, read through it, understand where the real problems are so they can be better in their discussions with the people or, or people of faith around them, and then give it to them and put these people on the spot. Then maybe something good will happen. And, you know, if those things start happening, then eventually the ballot box starts taking care of itself. If we start loving our neighbor and we start caring about people around us and, like, actually liking people who are different and wanting to meet, learn more about them and maybe learn from them, learn what God has told them, you know, through themselves, then, man, what a great place this would be to live. And on that well, note, I think that's a good place to stop, find Dr. Story? Future. So, Oh, well, it, since you insist, uh, uh, yeah, it's still at Amazon.com. We've been, you know, selling okay there. Uh, it's in ebook for having in Kindle and also paperback. Um, it's also at Barnes and Noble in paperback. Uh, I've got to do something real quick on a publisher name. And so it may go offline for a few hours. If you go over to Barnes and Noble and it's somehow not working, it's just for a few hours. It'll be working. Um, it's going to be coming out in EPUB for those of you all who have nooks and other things. I'm hoping within the next approximate week it'll be available in epub form if you prefer that instead of kindle and then i'm going to hopefully start getting it into apple and uh like walmart and things like that but that may take about a month and then i'm going to try to do a hardcover too because i want to get it in libraries i want to get it in some christian libraries hopefully i can like colleges to start some mischief there well that's, that's sneak, what I'll do. Sneak it yeah, you should just sneak it in sneak there. It yeah now, is there, is there some kind of law that they could arrest me for surreptitiously yeah. sneaking a book into the library? I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I hope they, they don't book me on adding a book to the library. But uh, So anyway, but, you know, i got a lot more to go. I, I'm going to oh, give it a while, man. see who in the world will talk to me. And I really don't know. I mean, some of my friends think the secular world is a better shot at what to hear. They may not like jesus on the front of the you know in the subtitle i don't know how open-minded they are some people are thinking the christian left are best suited and they may be because they don't know who i am that much uh i still care about the people who come from the right where i come from if they'll talk to me so i don't know you know it's like it's like i say in the front of the book for whoever has ears to hear and i don't know who that's going to be but i tell you what i absolutely love the conspiranormal listener and they love you because I have had a couple of people tell me whenever I posted it up on Facebook the previous shows they've said 
know, they see that you are like a true Christian and that you really believe. Well, do you ever tell them, Adam, that you know me personally and you know that that's a lie, that you know what a hypocrite hypocrite I am in real life? (laughs) He's nothing like that. He hates everybody. He he smokes big fat cigars and limousines and he's got them all fooled. I saw him drinking a Coca-Cola and watching a B movie. That's right. Oh no. Oh, now that will that will get me in bad stead with the fundamentalist. Although now Adam and I have watched the Trump prophecies. I was able to get a hold of that with the with the Trump prophet. And yes. uh I don't know if we've watched yes, Fireproof. God is not dead, but we'll we'll put that on the list too. So we're in good good standing. Uh, you don't want to you don't Are they watch horror movies? Trust me. Uh, horrible, man. That, well, they're, they're okay. horrible. Well, but. I just want to tell again all your <laughs> listeners there. Oh, can I ask one last favor too, if you don't mind, real quick? Because I'm I'm going to ask more out of your listeners than yeah. picking up a book. By the way, you know, I only get a few bucks out of this. Uh, Mr. Bezos keeps most of the money. I just get a few yeah. bucks, so it's not really a money thing. I I just had to drop another couple grand on something related to this, so I don't ever think this is ever going to make me a penny. But um, one of the things that they could really do to help to get the word out is that your listeners are very well connected into different communities. If they would be so kind is to when they're on other message boards or with other groups of people, whatever forum to just drop a line, mention this book and mention it to see just, you know, I, I call it like rolling a grenade under the tent. You just stick it out there and let it explode and, see what people says or even if they get a book make some of the more provocative quotes and just throw it out there and sort of raise heck with it and i would really appreciate if they would get the word out if there's other shows too that they think somehow some part of this would resonate with the listeners or the the people who host the show uh drop me an email and that's uh you know my old email still works drfuture at futurequake.com and uh, by the way, I have two other websites. I have one for the the publisher, Akribos Press. That's a a k r i b o s press dot com, or you can go to mikebittenbooks dot com and you can fill out a thing there. And I ask people if they have any suggestions on people I should talk to. Uh, put that on there. So let me know somebody I should contact or tell those other people. Say hey, get this guy on and talk about this. And they they would be working with me. So hopefully we can help stop the insanity. That's that's what the goal is. That's right. Stop the insanity. All right, guys. We're going to just close out the show. Um, all the usual stuff. Find us on Patreon, com slash Conspiranormal. You can join for as little as a dollar. You can hear some really great uh, extra interviews that we're doing, and we're doing those once a week now and uh leave us good review on itunes and subscribe to the youtube channel at conspiranormal podcast we're almost up to a thousand on there i want to thank dr future for being on and of course serfio and uh guys we we will back next time for more interesting stuff. Spirit normal. Spirit normal.
consider becoming a Patreon at www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com. And please check out our YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.